Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family by using real estate as your vehicle. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into another episode of the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Today on the show, we have Hunter Thompson. Hunter, thanks so much for being here. How's it going? Hey, thanks again for having me on. It's an honor to be on the program. Thanks. Before we get into the interview, here's a little bit about Hunter. Hunter is a full-time real estate investor and founder of ASUM Capital, which is a private equity firm based out of Los Angeles, California. Since starting his company, Hunter has helped more than 250 investors allocate capital to over 100 properties. He has personally raised more than $20 million in private capital and controls more than $60 million in commercial real estate. So that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to your accomplishments. So with that being said, Hunter, could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Yeah, sure. So um, like I mentioned, I'm the founder of ASIM Capital. Um, been in business since around the 2012 time period. I think that when most people start their story in real estate, 2008 plays a huge role in their story, whether it's a good side or a bad side type of thing. Mm-hmm. For me, I was really fortunate in that I wasn't investing in financial assets in 2008. So when 2008 happened, I thought there was an opportunity. Um, just part of that's kind of looking left when everyone's going right, maybe doing that to a fault. But it was obviously a really favorable time to get involved in financial assets of all kind. Um, At the time, I really started with stocks just because that was what was most marketed to me most frequently. And that's what I was most familiar with. And so study Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, et cetera, and started investing similarly to their investing strategy. Um, Started to see success with that. Although of course, people that started investing in stocks in 2008, you're going to have a really great start to your career, generally speaking. But as I was kind of contemplating what investing was all about and what financial freedom really meant, I started to feel like the stock market was an indirect way to accomplish those goals. And so when you take most investors and start codifying what they're trying to accomplish, it usually comes down to predictability of outcome and being able to pay off their cash flow um, later down the road without them working. And so the challenge, of course, is that you have to have a massive portfolio in order to accomplish that goal with the stock market. And it's just really, really challenging to do so. And as I was starting to come to that realization, something happened that not a lot of people talk about, which was uh, the European debt crisis of 2010. And this for me was my absolute last straw moment because I had spent all this time doing due diligence, conducting analysis, understanding how to read candlestick valuations and stuff like that, and, and not necessarily day trading, but just spending all this time learning this language, et cetera. And the, when Europe went through this liquidity crisis, it was very similar to what happened in the, Europe, Europe, um, the United States markets, but in Europe. And so all these central banks froze up. There was a lack of liquidity in the market, and it created a complete panic. And I remember watching CNBC and they were talking about the Greece bond yields. And they were saying if the Greece bond yields remained above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. But if it remained below 7%, the S&P 500 was going to be fine. 
And that was really the moment. I was waking up early to watch this nonsense take place in Greece time and was just thinking, why and how? Is it the case that after all this research, something as obscure as the Greece bond yields is now playing a role in my financial well-being, so much so that everyone on CNBC is talking about it? And that was really how I started you know, looking for more simple investments that a small family office or an individual person can actually conduct due diligence on and actually matter. And that quickly led me to real estate. Wow, awesome. That's an interesting story, and you don't often hear, hear it that way. So thanks for sharing. So today we're going to talk about uh, self-storage uh, as an asset class. And so can you tell us a little bit more about it and what makes it attractive investment? So, you know, looking at things um, on an investment basis, like I mentioned, my real estate career was really formed out of the Great Recession. And so I have a very unique approach to this because the strategies that I learned from the people that I was fortunate enough to meet early on in my career were the strategies that allowed them to move through the cycle. And especially living in California, when I started going to networking events, it was very somber, right? There was a lot of people that lost their shirt. And even if they didn't, they were friends with a lot of people that lost their shirt. And so I was fortunate enough because the timing of the market was very favorable. I obviously didn't do anything to do to that, but the networking component it was the people that were able to weather that storm. And so I was very quickly drawn to recession-resistant assets. Basically, the big picture is all types of real estate do well when the economy is booming and the capital markets are loose. If you have liquidity in the market, if people are buying and selling and valuations are favorable, it doesn't matter if you're investing in hotels or RV parks. It's all going to be trading in a, a great multiple and liquidity is there for you to effectuate those changes. So from my perspective, it's wise to invest in recession-resistant assets where the demand is either stable or inversely correlated to the overall economy. And I think that the self-storage business is a great example of that. Now, it's not as obvious as something like mobile home parks in the sense that the worse the economy does, the more demand there is for the product. That's pretty clear. With self-storage, uh, historically, it's equally as compelling, um, but not in on its face as obvious. So when people use the product, the demand is driven by some sort of life change, right? People changing jobs, people moving, people downsizing, one of the most important drivers of the business. And so all of those are more common during recessions and all of them are the drivers for the demand. And so you're starting to paint the picture that the worse the economy does, the more demand there is. And that's something that you know we can talk about in a podcast and I think it makes big, make big picture sense. But the data is actually very compelling. That thesis is, is very aligned with historical data. Um, it's a relatively new asset class, but particularly in 2000 and in 2008, rents were able to remain stabilized or even increasing, especially on REIT um, type of models. And so it's always good to kind of cross-check your thesis with the data. I think that you know, the data is quite clear on that. So with this asset class then, since it's uh, recession resistant, would you say then in a better economy, it's more difficult to keep the occupancy levels up? See, that's the whole thing, right? That's, that's kind of the whole point is that when the economy is booming, you can raise rents more aggressively. When the economy is booming, people are more likely to buy jet skis. When the economy is booming, the cap rates are going to be lower. And so you don't like, if you're looking at a portfolio, it's good to have some asset classes that are just going to rip when the economy is doing well, right? So what does that mean? A-class multifamily, right? Luxury hotels, something like that. Um, I don't invest in hotels, but you understand the point I'm trying to make. Now, when it comes to more defensive plays, especially late in the cycle, you've got to talk about getting really appropriate debt, 
on some of these assets where you don't get this incredible valuation change that you would in something like multifamily, but the slow and steady wins the waste type of approach. And so I think, like I mentioned, I think that the, the better the economy does, the easier it is to do things like raise rents or you know, expand the property or something like that, fill vacancies up quickly. And then when the economy corrects, you basically just continue to raise rents and, and continue to, to fill vacant units. Got it. So I'm sure that when you're doing market research for self-storage, it's slightly different than multifamily, just based on some of the, the things that you've talked about already. Can you maybe talk about some of the differences? Yeah. So I'll start out by kind of pulling behind the veil and exposing the asset class for a major weakness that it has. So with multifamily, one of the main data points that a lot of people like to see is that if you're buying below replacement cost, right? So the argument is if I'm buying this property below replacement cost, it's very challenging for a competitor to develop new units next door and charge a comparable rate because we're actually buying cheaper than they can develop. You'll never hear people talk about that metric in the self-storage business ever. And the reason is it's barely inexpensive to build them, meaning that you can almost always build them cheaper than you can buy them. So what you have to be extremely cautious about is buying in markets that are oversaturated because it's so favorable from a developer's perspective. So one of our important pieces of due diligence is to identify markets that are, there's a significant disequilibrium in terms of the supply and demand and the product is in demand uh, to the tune of several, either 100,000 square feet or more. And the way that we do this is the national average is about 7.7 square foot of self-storage per person in the U.S. And so we'll identify markets where you take you know, the population divided by seven and see where the, where the equilibrium is. And so you can find markets within a five mile radius that may be a quarter million square feet undersupplied based on that market average. Now, of course, that's just a rule of thumb. That's not something that we say, okay, great, it's undersupplied. Let's do it in the middle of Missouri where there's no, not a lot of population, you know, just something like that that doesn't really make sense. But it's a good sign. Because if you have a great solid market that has $50,000 a year in median income, that has some water-facing property or something like that where people are going to have those toys I was mentioning earlier, and you have occupancies that are relatively high, and you see that there's a quarter million square feet that is undersupplied based on those averages, someone can develop two, usually two, new self-storage facilities right next to you before you start to experience that challenge. And if the business plan is basically to keep occupancies and rents relatively within reason, then you're able to accomplish that before someone can up and develop and start to give you a real problem from a competitive situation. Um, Something else I wanted to mention is that one of the other reasons I really like the asset class, and one of the reasons that I'm, I'm sure you guys and your listeners really like multifamily, is that you get the economies of scale that you don't get in single family. You get the complexities of the business, meaning that there can be a huge difference between a mom and pop owner and a best in class owner. Those best in class owners can bring a tremendous amount to the table because of the complexities of the, of the business. And so with self-storage, it's very similar in the sense that you can do things like ancillary income becomes really important, merchandise sales, the ability to develop relationships with nearby businesses or universities or military bases. All of those things can really add up. And so the, the example that I like to give, um, which is really, really favorable in my opinion, is U-Haul truck rentals. So we can buy assets that are not implementing any sort of relationship with a truck rental company based on in-place income. And then we 
get uh, U-Haul, our contact there, will park 15 to 50 trucks on our facility. And then we rent out that, those trucks to the tenant base. And so we don't own the trucks, right? We're not maintaining the trucks. It's just a matter of facilitating that transaction. And so, you know, I've invested in properties where that one line item has gone from $0 a month to $3,500 a month directly to the bottom line. And it's just like, you're not taking on a proportional risk, right? I mean, it, the name of our firm is ASIM Capital. It's to get that asymmetric outcome. That's a great example of not putting forth uh, not putting forth a significant amount of risk and getting that outsized return. So we look for things like the supply demand equilibrium and also the lack of the implementation of some of those top tier type of strategies. Do you do ground up development or purchase existing? So from my perspective and everyone's different and every, it usually has to do with their investor base, right? And so my personal strategy, I don't believe it's necessary to incur that risk to achieve those types of outsized returns because there's so much mismanagement in the business. 77% of the business is non-REITs. Many of them are single asset owners, meaning that they just simply don't have the processes. They don't have the systems. And so if we're able to buy those properties based on in-place income and quickly implement that value add strategy on a proportional basis, it's not necessary to have two years of development before you start seeing that cash flow. Again, that's just our personal strategy and our based on our investor base and you know the type of conversations that we've had with operators and developers over the years. Who manages these assets on a day-to-day basis? Is it uh, similar to multifamily where you bring in a third-party property management company? Yes, um, to a certain extent. So because of the complexities of the business, when we invest in the asset, we want the sponsor and the property manager to be the same firm. And this is really critical because the implementation of these strategies, it's much more like owning a business than owning a commercial real estate asset. Now you get the benefits of the commercial real estate asset. You get the favorable financing, for example, you get the depreciation, et cetera. Um, but you, you don't have to go through all of that by just using a third party manager. It's really challenging to have real transparency in terms of implementation, unless it's a fully integrated firm. Got it. So what types of returns do you see in this asset class? Are they typically structured the same way as multifamily or are they, are they done a little bit differently? So, Typical, the structure we may see is like an 8% preferred return with the 70-30 split thereafter, something in that capacity. And that would be both on cash flow and equity. And we like to say that it will likely not make us get out of bed unless the returns are going to be in the low to mid-teens. Now, I think that's accomplishable in today's market. We certainly have some assets that have outperformed that previously. But again, you have to look at the economic situation. This is something that not enough investors are doing right now. Uh, you can build up in a tremendous track record if you have the most favorable economic correction in the history of the United States right. and you start your company at a really favorable time, which we did. So we want to set expectations, but I do think that you know, over the next five to 10 years, those low to mid-teens, that, that's something that's accomplishable. It's because of the mismanagement in the business. Um, will it always be the case? Likely not because the the structure is physically very simplistic, meaning that when there's the ability to invest in the asset, private equity just loves this space. Now, sometimes the argument has been made that when you're investing in five to $20 million properties, private equity doesn't have an interest in looking at assets that are that small. Because if you have a $100 million fund and you're leveraging it three to one, you're purchasing $300 million worth of assets. It would take years 
to really pick through those assets that are five and 10 and $17 million. And so we've been able to play in that space for a while, but these things don't last. And when you're able to generate those asymmetric returns, uh, the big boys find out they really move the needle and then we'll have to find out something else to do. <laughs> Got it. So other than what you mentioned as far as competition uh, being one of the major downsides, are there any other risk factors? Uh, obviously, there's risk factors with everything, but what are a couple other risk factors with self-storage? Well, I'll say this, and this is across multiple assets, but I'll make the case that it's particularly important for self-storage and, and mobile home parks as well. So the really looking at the capital stack of any purchase, the majority of the purchase is debt. And I think that that's the portion that people do not focus on. It should be proportional to the investment you're looking at. So imagine if your investor base all of a sudden decided that they only needed to receive, they needed to receive 1% or 100 basis points less of a return on an annual basis. How do you think that that would impact the market as a whole? Prices would go up, right? Well, usually investors are only the third of the equity position. So think about that in the interest rate environment where things are historically quite low, for example. It's really important to have these types of conversations as an investor because 99% of all the problems you're going to face in real estate have to do with the debt. And I mean the serious problems when it comes to loss of principal. In 2008 was a little bit of an aberration for a variety of reasons, but structurally, it's always the same. You have an uncle that lost a property because the interest rate went too high. They won't be able to refinance quickly enough. All of it, it's a reoccurring theme in real estate. So especially when we look at the self-storage business, this is one of the more tertiary asset classes, meaning that there's less lenders, meaning that if something goes wrong, you're going to have less friends to help you, which is what real estate is all about. Now, multifamily, man, you can always find a lender for a Texas 100-unit asset right? And that's one of the benefits of the asset class. It's a little bit more competitive because of that, but that's the reality of when things go wrong, how many friends do you have? And so I'm just really cautious about the debt component and want to make sure that we have a reasonable loan to value. The interest only period is short, so we're paying down that debt quickly and stuff like that. But um, you know, that's, that's not necessarily specific to self-storage. But again, if there's only five major lenders in the space, which they're not, but you understand the point I'm making. Um, if one or two start to have a problem with liquidity, if you have a 2008 situation, you want to be able to assure that you have other options out there in terms of that. And I can go into a million risks, but I think that's one that doesn't get enough attention. Yep. Does debt work the same way with self-storage or is there Fannie and Freddie uh, loans or is there another agency that kind of lends out to self-storage? So there's a variety of things. I mean, our strategy is we have private lenders, not private lenders, but institutions that we work with, and they specialize in self-storage. And this is partially because of our strategy in the sense that we want a lender that understands the asset class, right? So if there's a lending branch, there's just an institutional bank, I want to see that they have a self-storage arm because if something goes wrong, it's hard sometimes for banks to understand they're got, okay, number one, they're paying month to month. The tenant base is paying month to month. So it's like, how valuable is that cash flow? Is it going to go away? What's this U-Haul commission component? There's complications of the business that I think lend itself to having a specialist. Um, but yes, there is all, all the typical options. You have CMBS, you have regional banks, et cetera. But we have a lender that we work with regularly that understands the business thoroughly so that if does something does go wrong, the implication is that they'll be able to understand it when other institutions may not. You talked earlier about recession-resistant investments. Can you tell us a little bit more about your opinion about what that looks like? 
Yeah. So again, I think it comes down to ensuring that demand is stable and that your debt component is really conservative. So in the business right now, I think the average is, <clears throat> excuse me, about 68% loan to value. Um, we think that that's reasonably conservative, but we have an offering right now that's it's sub 60% in the loan to value. Now, the loan to value, of course, is an important metric, but it doesn't paint the whole picture. Um, you also need to talk about those other factors and how significant the value add component is and how long the debt term is, meaning that if you have more time to add more value specifically to the NOI, the likelihood that you'll be able to refinance before the term is, is increased. And, and really, I mean, I know it just, we had just talked about debt, but when it comes to recession resistance, that's really it. I think I've made the case previously, and if you if your listeners are interested, you can just Google recession resistance cell storage. There's a great article by Cushman. Um, we also talk about the same article in our ebook. Uh, just shoot me an email, info at cashflowconnections.com. I'll send you that. The demand is really stable, but that does not paint the whole picture. The other picture is the debt component. So I think when you have a combination of those two things, uh, you get the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of times every, you know, as an investor, they're trying to get the best LTVs and they're not really thinking about it, like you said, from a debt perspective and the risk that takes on, especially where we are in the market cycle. So that's a great point. So you have an article that covers the seven stages of due diligence for passive investors. And we don't have time to kind of cover all of them, but maybe a high level um, overview of what that entails. Yeah, so it's actually interesting. So um, this is something... I did a uh, presentation on this that was four hours and then someone asked me to do like a 30 minute version. And then someone said, saw that one and asked me to do a 15 minute version. And now I'm asking you to do a 30 second, <laughs> throw it, throw it out. <laughs> it's like, this is like my life's work, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll throw it out there real quick. So basically this is my perspective. So the way that we're positioned as a firm, uh, we identify passive investments for our investor base, right? Which are accredited investors. And so I basically created uh, a template that, is an order of importance in terms of what you should be focusing on as a passive investor. Now, this is just my opinion, um, but if you start with this and work your way out, even if you only ask three questions about each of these stages, you'll be in a position that's much better than some of the other passive investors out there that are having success, but again, in a very favorable climate. So the first one is the sponsor. And that is really the entirety of the diligence process is based on the sponsor in the sense that the rest of the ones that I'll go through are really reading between the lines to find out who you're making a bet on. So I just want to verify the claims that they're making. I like to talk to referrals, but look, I provide investor referrals with other investors, right? But who are the types of investors that are going to be interested in talking to my potential investors? My friends, right? People that have great experiences. So what I want to do is I want to talk to professional referrals. I want to look at who are the contracting companies they've worked with? Who is this person's CPA? Who is their attorney? And that gives you a much more significant level of transparency rather than their aunt who had a great experience investing with them. Nothing against her, by the way. Like I said, I provide those referrals as well, but I think just there's more to gain and lose about being transparent if it's a professional referral. Um, the second one is the on-site manager. I'm just looking at the, the software that they use, trying to get transparency in terms of what the manager is going to provide the sponsor. You don't need that every month, but that's just a good idea to see the level of sophistication. Number three, the loan and the financing. Um, we've definitely talked a lot about that today, which I'm always happy to do. Those are the types of questions that you want to understand. Um, number four is the property performance and the uh, pro forma. The key here is looking at the trailing 12 and then looking at the year one, year two, year three projections and comparing them and really 
anytime there's a significant difference, the sponsor needs to be able to make the case clearly based on data that this is accomplishable. So if you're going from 55% expense ratio, meaning that 55% of your income is going to expenses, and then in the first year, it's going from 55 down to 45, it may certainly be the case that that's reasonable, but we need to understand why that's the case and what is the strategy that's really going to implement that change. Number five is the market. And so a lot of people, they all have the same things that they're looking for, right? Jobs, diversification of employment, et cetera. But it's just really important to codify that. Like, what does it mean to have quote jobs? What I like to see is I don't, it starts to be a yellow flag if I see more than 25% of the employment going towards one sector, right? And so something like that can help a lot, especially if it's something like hospitality, which can be really cyclical or a tech, for example, tech is incredible. A lot of hundred thousand dollar plus jobs. A lot of these companies though, rely on perpetual VC funding. So if something changes in that space, maybe you'll have a challenge if you're in a highly tech focused submarket. Number six is property specific due diligence. And these are things like the size of the market. So in the self-storage business, or excuse me, the size of the asset, in the self-storage business, we like to see 400 units or more, uh, 50,000 square feet or more. This allows for you to have the economies of scale because every property needs a property manager. The property manager is going to make the same no matter how many units there are, et cetera, things like that. Um, with retail, I like to see 13 tenants. With uh, senior living, I like to see 100 beds. Multifamily, I like to see 100 properties. These are just uh, 100 units. These are just my perspectives, but um, that's kind of the template that we use. And number seven, uh, which is obviously the least important, but it's still on the list. Um, and I'm sorry for the attorneys out there, but it's the legal documents. Um, I love you guys, but your job just really isn't that important. Here's why. <laughs> it's only going to matter if you sue them. The legal documents are only going to help you if you're ready to put up $100,000 to sue them. And, and that is just not the position that you want to be in. Now, you want to ensure that the legal documents are really quality. And you want to ensure that they're quality because you want to make sure that you're making a bet on the right team that understands the stuff to the level that, that is a sophisticated you know, operator. But the legal documents will not help you. Um, if you guys have reviewed a PPM, you know, it's basically like, here's 200 pages of reasons that you should never invest with us. Click here to send us your wire instruction. <laughs> so, you know, it's not for that. So those are the seven. So hopefully that was helpful. And, and like I said, there's a lot of investors that have had a lot of success. And if you can ask just, let's say two or three questions about each one of those seven, you'll be well on your way to, you know, establishing yourself as a passive investor. Yeah, that's great. I think you did a great job of taking four hours down to a couple of minutes. So. <laughs> Very so impressive. Yeah. Lead is going to take us into our final four questions. Are you ready? Great. Awesome. Here we go, Hunter. What is the one tool that you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? You know, I invest all over the country. And so Argus Online is a, a really good product. It's a business analyst thing and you can get, it's basically census data. It's about $1,000 a year, which I think is reasonably priced for what it is. And you can basically analyze income, population, daily travel vehicles, et cetera. Awesome. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing so far and the main takeaway for our listeners? Yeah. So the, the big picture was that I made a bet on an operator that wasn't experienced. And unfortunately, the operator was myself and it was in single family. So, I mean, here, here's the thing with this. You can make money in single family. 
Um, there's a lot of people that have done so. There's a lot of people who generate massive wealth for themselves in single family, but there's some inherent challenges with the business. And one of those challenges, um, at least from a personality standpoint for myself, I like dealing with highly sophisticated individuals that stand to gain millions of dollars if they're able to execute for you. And so when you're in single family and you're investing in, which I'm sure everyone that's listening to this podcast at least has considered this or has done this, wow, you can invest in the middle of America, you can put $30,000 down and you can own an entire home. That's incredible. Well, the challenge though is the property manager's $50 a month. And you're like, what a great deal. Well, the type of property manager that's going to be doing that, you're going to be tied to them and their incentive to execute on you is based on $50 a month, which is not really that consequential. And so you start to see challenges where they're nitpicking you over expenses and fees and the generator that never works and stuff like that. And if you have to fly there once, your cash flow for the year is basically destroyed. And so I like to make bets on large firms that can make five, 10, $15 million on one property. And um, I also like to pool investors together. So you're entering the world of securities, meaning that if people act in bad faith, there is a criminal component. And when investors are pulled together individually, if you invested $30,000, economically, you can't really pursue someone legally, but cumulatively you may be able to. And so I like to, to play in that space where there, there's a lot to stand to gain or lose for execution. Yeah. Great advice. I think a lot of our listeners can relate to that situation as well. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, what is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Man, um, that's a great question. So I really love uh, conducting interviews like this. Um, we have a show as well, and I love learning from, from highly influential people in the sector. And I want to spend more and more time doing that. Um, my goal is to, to continue to help people allocate money into assets that have predictability of outcome. I think real estate is a great example of that for a variety of reasons. And I just want to continue to do more of that. I think that a great exercise that anyone can do and in terms of growing your life to the next level, uh, doing a real time audit of the tasks that you do during the week and then ordering each of those tasks on a scale of one to 10 in terms of how competent you are and 10 being the kind of tasks that all of your friends want you to do for them all the time and the type of tasks that you don't want to, you don't want to sleep because you're so excited to do them and one being the kind of thing that you're completely incompetent at. And then going in Excel and ordering it in terms of that number and starting at the very bottom number and outsourcing everything, working your way up from the sixes to the sevens to the eights. And then if you can spend all of your time working that eight, nine, 10 basis, your business will start to scale incredibly because you're so motivated to go and do all those tasks. And that's what I'm working on constantly. So I have an interview coming up with Andy Duke, who's a, a professional poker player, used mm -hmm. to be a retired professional poker player that does business consulting, wrote a great book called Thinking in Bets. I'm a super jazzed for this interview. And so I wouldn't be doing anything if I had 10 more zeros in my bank account of having the same exact day as I'm going to have today. So that's the type of thing I want to do more of. And what's the title of your show? It's the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. Thanks for asking. Perfect. And Hunter, lastly, where can people find out more about you? So the website is cashflowconnections.com. Uh, the investment firm is asymcapital.com. That's A-S-Y-M capital.com. Uh, like I said, you can shoot me an email at info at cashflowconnections.com. I'll shoot you a free ebook. And um, yeah, I always love it. networking with investors, teaching investors, et cetera. Awesome. Thanks for providing us with some uh, great in-depth education on another asset class like self-storage. Uh, you're doing some real great things, so please keep us uh, posted on your accomplishments.
Yeah, I really appreciate it, guys. It's an honor to come on, and thanks again. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.